Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The Bowery Boys episode 203. Nikola Tesla in New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With an electrifying subject this week, the focus of our show is perhaps not an obvious choice. He was someone who never ran for office. He never built a skyscraper. But this individual is kind of a cult figure for many people, a prolific inventor, an eccentric mind, and someone who spent most of their life in New York City. That would be Nikola Tesla. Beyond being perhaps a bit eccentric, Tesla was one of New York's greatest visionaries. And today we will be telling a tale that alternates between Gilded Age New York and current events. <laughs> I'm glad you plugged those puns in early, Tom. No, <laughs> I'm out. I'm now out. <laughs> so his story kind of embodies a couple New York archetypes, right? At the heart of this is a man who created some of the greatest inventions of the Gilded Age, but was somewhat clamped down in a competitive cutthroat world of New York business. It's also a story of a loner who lingered kind of along the sidelines of a lot of major events in New York City, but was constantly a fixture, always in the background, and a part of the heart and soul of New York. But he was also somebody who worked his whole long life, one very long workday after another, to make new discoveries in electricity, wireless transmission, and many, many other areas, many of which are way over my head. And many of these discoveries took place right here in New York. Now, just as a disclaimer, as you probably know, Tom and I are not... We're not physicists. We're not. We can hardly even say the word. I can't even uh, wire a lamp in my living room. So we may gloss over a lot of very technical things in this story. Well, and, right. If we get our narrative wires crossed, uh, mm-hmm. please forgive us, especially if you are an engineer or physicist listening to this. We're going to do our best in covering the scientific aspects of the show, but we're really going to be focusing more on the, the narrative of Tesla's life. So join us as we discover the tale of Nikola Tesla in New York.
All right, Tom, how does the story of Nikola Tesla begin? Because he comes to New York City as a young man. Right, in his 20s. So where did he come from? Where did this force of nature come from? What is the origin of Nikola Tesla? Tesla was born July 10th, 1856, in a village called Smiljan in today's Croatia. It was, um, at the time, the eastern edge of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. He came from a Serbian family, um, a religious family. His father was a priest, uh, and his grandfather was a priest. But even perhaps more important to today's story, Tesla's mother was an inventor herself. And according to his autobiography, it sounds like young Nikola was something of an unusual child, unsurprisingly. Um, He was somewhat sensitive. He talks about experiencing flashes and visions as a child that left him wondering kind of what was real and what wasn't. He was, as a child, fascinated by Niagara Falls, very appropriately, and dreamed someday of being able to somehow harness all of the power of, of Niagara Falls into something that was productive for mankind. And he was also a bit of a rebel, wasn't he? Because he was kind of fought against some of the ambitions that his father had for him. Well, his father, right, as a priest, wanted him to do the respectable thing, uh, which was either become a priest or join the military. But he really didn't want to. He was too fascinated by science and engineering, and he wanted to go off and study those things. And he probably would not have been able to go off and and study engineering had he not come down with a terrible case of cholera when he was 17 years old. And it looked like Tesla might not have even made it through it. Wait, so Uh, it's because of cholera that he may have become an inventor? Well, his father obviously was very religious. Mm -hmm. And and Nikola said to his father, if I make it through this terrible sickness, father, may I go off and study engineering? And his father said, yes, if God brings you through this, you can go off and study whatever you like. And Tesla recounts in his autobiography that it just like with what seemed like divine help, he just got better. And, <laughs> and his father agreed. In 1877, he went off to Graz, Austria, when he was 21, to study electrical engineering. And electricity at the time was still a relatively young field. It had been electrical induction had been studied since the 1830s, but this relied upon direct current uh, Mm -hmm. to power these electrical motors. And Nikola, even at that age, in his early 20s, was fascinated with the possibility of another kind of electrical motor, something that would use alternating currents instead of direct currents. And I'll get into that a little bit later in the story. Thank you, because I have... (laughs) That's about... I've maxed out my understanding. No, no, no. Not an ACDC fan? Actually, Greg, I'm more of a Metallica fan. (laughs) Oh, right. Of course. It's it's so apparent. Uh, So anyway, he's off in Graz studying here. Right. And he spends time as well studying in Prague. Unfortunately, he was never, like, really enrolled in classes there, and he didn't speak Czech. He didn't let those things hamper his education. No, he transcended them. (laughs) And uh, in a few years, in 1881, through some more family connections, he moved to Budapest, where he was working at the Central Telegraph Office, and then at the Budapest Telephone Exchange as a chief electrician. But upon his arrival in Budapest, he was still, reportedly, still so obsessed with how to build this 
alternating current motor, right? But he, he became so obsessed with this that he had to take off and take a walk through the city park with, uh, with his best friend and get some fresh air. And it was while walking and, and noticing how the sun was setting. And according to him, he was also reciting out loud some of his favorite verses from Goethe's Faust, as one does. As one does. From his autobiography, he says... As I uttered these inspiring words, the idea came like a flash of lightning, and in an instant the truth was revealed. I drew with a stick on the sand the diagram shown six years later in my address before the American Institute of Electrical Engineers, and my companion understood them perfectly. The images I saw were wonderfully sharp and clear, and I had the solidity of metal and stone. It's a running theme through his life, by the way, that these long walks are actually these meditative situations where a eureka moment will happen during the course of them. Because when he's in New York, he's walking everywhere. Well, from Budapest, he goes to Paris, where Nicola works for a, a sort of branch of the Edison Company in 1882. And while he's in France, he works at the Paris Opera House installing lamps. He's sent to Strasbourg on a, on a project. And a few years later in 1884, again, thanks to his family, he set sail for New York uh, with a letter of introduction from the Edison Company in Europe to the Edison Company and even Mr. Thomas Alva Edison himself. It wasn't an easy sailing. He recounts how even before he got on the ship to come across, he had had his tickets and his money stolen. Uh, once he's on board, there's all kinds of drama including, according to other sources, the fact that there was a mutiny while on board what? and that what? the passengers like took over control at one point and that they nearly threw him overboard. For someone who really relies on sort of chance to find, <laughs> uh, to find some of these discoveries, he's, he doesn't have the greatest luck, does he? No, I... I don't know how you nearly get tossed <laughs> overboard well, thankfully with, he without wasn't. sort of provoking. Yeah, yeah, well... But he arrived in New York on June 6, 1884, with four pennies in his pocket. Well, it must have been so breathtaking and wondrous to step off the boat and see New York City for the first time. Well, not to burst your bubble, Greg, but he actually found it kind of backwards. Uh, he was coming from Budapest and then from Paris. Mm -hmm. He found New York to be kind of brutal and sort of ugly, as he wrote... What I had left was beautiful, artistic, and fascinating in every way. What I saw here was machined, rough, and unattractive. Is this America? I asked myself in painful surprise. It is a century behind Europe in civilization. Did you so, have the same impression when you first came to New York? I did not, but we'll forgive him with that impression because A, it probably is kind of accurate, and B, he does end up living here for most of his life, so he must yeah, have liked something. He got in the groove. So does he, in fact, deliver this letter of introduction to Mr. Edison? Yes, right away. Within days, he was actually sitting down across from Thomas Edison and had been hired uh, by Edison to work at Edison Machine Works, which was on Gorick Street, which is a street that no longer exists anymore. It's been replaced by a Baruch place, which is a street that's at the very eastern end of Houston. So it's a but it's Lower East Side. Yeah. 
This is 1884. Edison had opened up the Pearl Street power station that we talked about in our Edison and New York electricity show. Oh, yeah. I was actually prefaced by saying that that show is a good companion to this one. And it's we recorded that a few years ago. But the Pearl Street station is the first direct current electrical power station that was opened down in the area of today's seaport area, right? Right. And this was 1882. So just two years later in 84... He had landed this job. He was getting paid $18 a week and was immediately assigned to work on electrical lighting and engineering projects. The next year in 1885 was this famous exchange, and we talked about it in that other show. This was a pivotal moment in Tesla's life and Edison's too, I suppose, where allegedly Edison asks Tesla to improve the design of his DC direct current generators uh, to make them more efficient. According to Tesla, the exchange went something like this. Edison said, there's $50,000 in it for you if you can do it. And Tesla rose to the occasion, took on the challenge, and worked his extremely long workdays from 10 o'clock in the morning until 5.30 in the morning the next day. Legendarily, never sleeping Mm -hmm. more than two hours. And he accomplished the goal. And Edison was very impressed and offered him a $10 a week raise. Hmm. But not $50,000, right? Right. And when Tesla approached Edison um, and asked about that $50,000, Edison purportedly retorted that that was just a joke and that he, quote, didn't understand the American sense of humor. So Tesla did understand that he had just been taken advantage of, however, mm-hmm. and he quit the Edison company entirely. Now, this story, it's, it has a sort of a polish to it that rings a little bit like an urban legend. Mm-hmm. But we do know for a fact that for whatever reason, he did, in fact, leave the employee of Edison in 1885. Unfortunately for Tesla, he starts off a little rocky off on his own here. And like just before he left Edison, he had already received some financing for, for his own little venture called the Tesla Electric Light and Manufacturing Corporation, which was to set up some of this arc lighting mm-hmm. in a location in New Jersey. Now, arc lighting was all the rage in the 1880s. I think we've discussed it on a couple prior shows, but it's essentially these incredibly gigantic lights that could only be used for outdoor lighting. It was quite dangerous. Right. These were bright illuminations, not necessarily the most flattering. No, but they used to have them in Madison Square and Union Square that they would turn on late at night. Kind of like floodlights. Yes. Floodlights. Yes. So unfortunately, though, within that year, though, the investors that he worked for stiffed him. So Tesla was without money and more important, without patents for these inventions that he made. Made. So he's kind of getting hosed here by Edison and by these investors. You know, he yeah, he gets squeezed a lot out of, of certain deals. He's not the most adroit at these kind of business negotiations either, as you'll see. And of course, the key to Gilded Age invention is the owning of patents, that your inventions need a patent so that you can then license them. And that's really how you make the money. And even the smallest components of your inventions need these patents. So things got so bad for him that in 1886 and into 87, he was even employed as a ditch digger, making $2 a day. But you can't keep a good man down. And he eventually, through some connections that he had made, caught the interest of two other investors named Albert Brown and a lawyer named Charles Peck, who were dazzled by Tesla's ideas. 
So they joined him as his business partners? Yes, business partners and investors, and as sort of the showy face out into the business world, while Tesla could sort of stay inside and make the inventions. And then they would go out and they would receive the patents on behalf of Tesla and then license those patents out to various companies. And that's how they would all make a bunch of money. So his very first laboratory, his own laboratory in New York City, was at 89 Liberty Street. Now, can you picture where that might be, Tom? Do you remember? Mm, is this close to Broadway? Well, Broadway and Liberty? Yeah. Can you, do you remember our Battle for the Skyline podcast when we recorded at Zuccotti Park? Absolutely, yeah. So the building where this laboratory was, was across the street from where we recorded that show. So it's right next to Zuccotti Park mm. on the north side. Sounds like a good place to be in the 1880s. Yeah, it was centrally located. It was right around the corner from the offices of his partners here. He worked upstairs from a stationary shop where he worked, of course, all hours of the night, producing different kinds of motor experiments for visitors and newspaper writers who'd come in and, of course, possible investors who just wanted to see this stuff work. So motor experiments. So is he focusing, he's gone from working on arc lighting, I take it to now working in his own lab on developing this motor yes, so the, that he's been obsessed with. Right. And, and in specific, these tests were on the idea of alternating current with these new concepts and motors with rotating magnetic fields. In his own words, years later, 1921, quote, After inventing this motor, I gave myself up more intensely than ever to the enjoyment of picturing in my mind new kinds of machines. It was my great delight to imagine motors. I had created mentally all the types of motors and modifications of the system which are now identified with my name. So if you can imagine, mm -hmm. picture in your head, that he's in this lab not only actually physically creating things, but dreaming up a thousand more ideas. I think you can get a little bit with that anecdote, the sort of like showman quality that he sometimes possessed, mixed with a little bit of the eccentricities that would later come more to prominence later in life. So clearly he has motor skills. <laughs> oh, great motor skills. And, and does he get this to work? I mean, he's got all this in his head, but does it practically work? It, it does indeed, with a little bit of flash and showmanship in its presentation, of course, which was most prominently displayed on May 16th, 1888, when he spoke for an important group of engineers at Columbia. Now, this is not when Columbia was way up in Morningside Heights, but mm. back at their campus on 49th Street in Madison. Right, the upper estate around today's Rockefeller Center. Mm -hmm. So when he was there on that evening, he presented a lecture and demonstration that was so profound, so interesting and convincing that at once, according to Harper's Weekly, quote... At one bound, Tesla placed himself abreast of such men as Edison, Brush, Alihu Thompson, and Alexander Graham Bell, unquote. His alternating current motor worked so well that that same year, he licenses those patents to George Westinghouse, who was the chief competitor of Edison during this period, who focused on employing this AC current in opposition to Edison's DC. Now, Edison versus Westinghouse, this is the classic, nasty, and contentious conflict that we often call the War of the Currents. Right, a famous battle of titans. Mm -hmm. So as we just said, Edison was already here um, in the city producing electricity 
through direct current. Right, down at his Pearl Street station. Correct. Right. And now we have Tesla showing that alternating current is possible as well, and that it's actually cheaper and safer to produce. What's number one at stake here, and then we'll sort of explain the difference, what's absolutely at stake is not sort of a peace of mind or which is, which is the better product, but really it's money and profits. And these two men are focused on these two different ways of delivering energy, delivering electricity. In truth, there was no clear way at this particular point in the mid-1880s. For instance, like Rome used alternating current, but you know New York was wired mostly in direct current because of Edison. Here's the real key difference, and instead of really going into like how these currents are distributed, which is kind of technical, too technical for us, I think the key difference and something that's easy to sort of understand is that DC direct current needed to be delivered relatively closely, meaning you needed a lot of little power plants, Mm -hmm. right, to be able to deliver that energy powerfully. And the current was very powerful, but it didn't travel very well. Right. Now, the opposite is alternating current, which could be generated from far distances away and then sent, delivered at longer distances. Much more efficiently. But if Edison already has New York sort of wired for direct current, it seems like he wouldn't have a commercial interest in changing over to this alternating current system. No, no. I mean, it's a direct threat to his whole distribution system and, of course, a threat to his industry. So no surprise, he begins to slander AC in the press and Westinghouses and other producers of alternating current, proclaiming it's dangerous and uncomfortable and costly. To be fair, it often was dangerous, but that had to do more with these unregulated local companies who were producing alternating current and making it quite deadly. Most prominently in, on October 11th of 1889, at the corner of Chambers and Center Street up at City Hall, this workman was electrocuted and fell into the wires. His body entangled in a mess of them, and this made all the newspapers, and of course he could, Edison could use this as an example of how dangerous AC was. So Edison launches a smear campaign, but the fact that I'm looking at that alternating current socket today in the corner of this room tells me that Tesla slash Westinghouse and alternating current won out in the end. Indeed, they do win out, which is kind of shocking shocking to think that Edison loses this battle or really sells out. Partially because Westinghouse and Tesla have these two grand projects that then they were able to demonstrate alternating current, one of them being the World's Fair of 1893. Chicago's World's Columbian Exposition. Oh, yeah. Chicago's White City Exposition. And, of course, the creation of of the Niagara Falls Generator Project. So this thing that Tesla had dreamt about, Mm -hmm. he now got to participate in. And it was because of these two things that really AC was probably sold to people. Edison, of course, eventually did sell out to one of his key competitors, and then their new company became General Electric. Okay, so Westinghouse is using Tesla's patents, Mm -hmm. right? Where is Tesla, though, himself in all of this? Is he working for George Westinghouse? Yes. Well, he's he's not on the front lines here, but he is, of course, invested in this debate and is busily producing things in his laboratories. And he does occasionally go to Pittsburgh to work with Westinghouse directly, of course. But from the couple labs that I want to focus on, his two intriguing labs uh, in lower Manhattan, the first one from 1889 to 1891, 
is at 175 Grand Street. So in the area of today's Little Italy, it's on the same block as the Italian American Museum. Okay. If you, if you know where that is. Now, Around Mulberry and Grand? Yes, yes. So it was from here that he began developing perhaps one of the most well-known inventions uh, of his life, which is the Tesla coil, a device that produces high-voltage AC current uh, without using wires. Now, we all know this from films, and if you've gone to a science museum, you've seen a Tesla coil. It's an incredibly dramatic object that shoots out lightning, and it usually crawls along the top of it. So he developed the Tesla coil on Grand Street? Yes. Now, I couldn't, I couldn't tell exactly if it was quote-unquote invented there, or it, you know, or it was one of these things, of course, that's a, it's an evolving project that follows him through these different laboratories. But it was definitely worked on here right in Little Italy. Now, his second and perhaps better known laboratory um, in 1891 was at a curious address, 3335 South Fifth Avenue. Mm-hmm. Now, today we call that street West Broadway. It's essentially the streets that are south of Washington Square. LaGuardia Place. LaGuardia Place, yes. That so, would be demolished by Robert Moses. Right. Oh, it ties into our Jane Jacobs show. Uh, so it was the French Quarter, as they called that neighborhood back in the day. Quaint. Meaning that, again, it was not in like a really fine building, right? I mean, he was doing these tough jobs in these very average, normal buildings. While the, while the lab spaces were modest, his life was not. For a while, he lived at the Astor House. He was a man that loved his hotel living. Uh, it was around this time that he began being seen in public eye, like dining at Delmonico's and hobnobbing with a lot of great New Yorkers, including Mark Twain, who he would do experiments with in the laboratory. He would participate in some of these fabulous experiments. And there's some beautiful pictures of the two of them in a lab with electricity emanating from him. And, and Twain already had some great hair. <laughs> right. So I yes. can just imagine, you know, what some electroshocks could do to that. <laughs> You say he was something of a bon vivant at this period, well, yeah. uh, but it seems like probably his finances were improving, right? If he was in this like nice relationship with Westinghouse where he was getting $2.50 per horsepower mm-hmm. of electricity that was produced. That is true, and he's definitely at the top of his game right now, mm-hmm. but a lot of that money was invested back into his work. So he wasn't someone who seemed to have saved a lot of money, let's just say, even as he's going to the Players Club, which was Edwin Booth's lofty club for actors and writers and like, uh, you know, rubbing shoulders with these very prominent and extremely wealthy people who would help him later in his career. He himself did not exactly embody that himself. He was on the top of the world until March 13th, 1895, when, well, I will just read the first paragraph from the Electrical Engineer Journal that was published two days later. Quote, Destruction of the Tesla laboratory by fire. By a fire which almost completely gutted the six-story and basement building at 33 and 35 South Fifth Avenue, this city on March 13th. Mr. Nikola Tesla, the electrician, lost all of the apparatus with which he was carrying on his professional experiments. He occupied the entire fourth floor. When the floor gave way, his apparatus fell to the second story where it lay in unrecognizable ruin. It was not insured. Unquote. So the whole lab burned up? His whole lab burned up. But of course, like a phoenix, he would rise from those ashes to attempt some of his most ambitious work. 
he would also experience some of his greatest setbacks here in the near future. We'll get to all of those details after the commercial break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. So we're back. Well, Greg, you left us during a fire. The burning embers of motors in a laboratory. Well, obviously, Tesla had to set up a new lab. And he did that not so far away from South Fifth Avenue. He went over to 46 East Houston Street, which is basically at Mulberry and Houston on the north side of the street. So it would have been across the street from the Puck Building. Very close. You know where that where the world's smallest Bank of America (laughs) is, that little wedge building right there, Uh just across um, Mulberry from that, but on the north side. It's a CVS today. Okay. Aren't they all? (laughs) ATM or a CVS? And it was here that he would dust himself off and turn his attention not just to perfecting AC power production, but also into the transmission of power. So here he's really like working with all kinds of wireless technology, right? Be they radio waves or sending power through Mm -hmm. the air. Electrical. And this takes us from the War of the Currents into another battlefield, the radio wars, which he would wage for decades, really, against Guglielmo Marconi, the Italian inventor who in the 1890s and 1900s would be putting out his own inventions in the field of radio technology into intercontinental telegraph communications. And we shared part of his story in our podcast on the world of radio. If you want more information on his adventures and his accomplishments in New York City. Well, Marconi and and Tesla would kind of dance around each other because Tesla would get in 1897 a patent in radio technology when he realized that he could broadcast at a single frequency, right, and have a set of towers that just broadcast and received at that specific frequency. This was early radio broadcasting and reception, and he was able to patent that radio technology. Marconi would use Tesla's inventions, and Marconi was hoping to really have the first wireless transmission uh, um, across the Atlantic from Europe to the U.S., and he was trying to drum up business and drum up investment. 
Tesla dreamed of actually taking it quite a bit further and developing the ability to send not just communications wirelessly, but also to send power wirelessly, to send electricity wirelessly, mm-hmm. and to also send commands wirelessly. He dreamed of radio control being sent uh, through his towers. I mean, this is so visionary, and we would know some of this, of course, would be, in fact, very doable. Right. Well, he did it in 1898 at the Electrical Show at Madison Square Garden, the old one. He held a presentation where he sent around a little radio-controlled boat in a pool, and using a radio-controlled device, he was able to control it. He was able to make it float one direction and then change directions. There were little lights on the boat that he was able to control through through his control device. And I mean, this must have looked like magic, right? Because oh, this kind of radio control had never really even been displayed. People couldn't believe what they were seeing. They, some thought that it was magic. Some even accused him of having a trained monkey hidden inside the device <laughs> itself. Well, that would have been fun to to expose, but I guess, but it's not that. It was the ra- it was the radio waves. He called this device his teleautomaton. And it's notable because it's the first demonstration of a radio-controlled device. He also built in robotics. He was able to control the small robot that was inside the device. And he dreamed of a day when it would even go further, when the device would be able to react to stimuli and sort of think for itself. So he was kind of envisioning a world of computerized drones, So by the end of the 1890s, Tesla's ideas and inventions are getting more ambitious and even larger. Oh, absolutely. So much so that by 1899, Tesla left New York. He headed out to Colorado Springs, Colorado, because he needed more space. He was dreaming of this scenario, right, where he could send electricity through the atmosphere and through the air. Well, That was hard to do, A, when you're paying New York City rents. (laughs) Yes, that's true. There just isn't that much air to send it through. And then B, it was difficult when you had all of the other interferences of the city, because there was a lot of other electricity already happening by the end of the 1890s in New York. It was a quote-unquote loud city. Right. Especially when you were working on high-frequency electrical experimentation. So in Colorado Springs, he built the largest ever Tesla coil with a giant antenna. Now, the company line was, for people who were kind of suspicious and (laughs) nervous, that he was working on intercontinental communications, that he was hoping to send messages from Colorado all the way to Paris. And maybe he was working on that to a certain Mm -hmm. degree, but he was also looking to get out of town, way out of town, and work on sending bolts of electricity through the air wirelessly and see if electricity could be distributed that way. When he flipped his antenna, giant bolts did shoot off. So much so that while experimenting in 1899, suddenly the power of nearby Colorado Springs was actually knocked out. For he had actually set off a fire in the power plants in the town, Mm -hmm. knocking everybody's electricity out. That's, I mean, that's something that like a mad scientist supervillain would do in a movie. Oh, absolutely. This is where he starts like living up to that reputation mm-hmm. because, you know, locals were also sometimes complaining about like shocks, you know, weird shocks. Yeah, what when if they you had a farm around. with animals, you right. know? Horses who have, you know, <laughs> metal shoes on yeah. who were suddenly getting spooked and shocked. 
Well, so did they run him out on a rail? Well, he didn't stay very long. By January of 1900, he was heading back uh, to New York, pretty satisfied, I think, with the research and sure that if he could drum up some money and set up a much bigger plant around New York, he could actually transmit electricity through the air along the East Coast. So what year did he move back? He moves back in January of 1900, and he sets up an office at 8 West 40th Street. That's at 40th and 6th Avenue, right across from the library today. However, at this period when he was there, 1900 to 1902, across the street from him, the workmen would have been dismantling the old reservoir for mm. the, the cornerstone of the library wouldn't be laid until May of 1902, and construction wouldn't be finished, and the library wouldn't be open until 1911. So some hectic street life outside as he's cooking up some inventions inside. That's right, and he's running around town. Now, he's, this is sort of a fabulous chapter in Tesla's uh, New York experience because he's living at the Waldorf Astoria, mm-hmm. right? He's out on the town, he's dining at Delmonico's, and he's trying to raise money for this big plan he's got, right? To, to build over here on the East Coast. Yeah. Right, this big power plant uh, that isn't going to be in New York City proper because he needs a lot of space. It's going to be out in Shoreham, Long Island, and he buys 200 acres out in Long Island, about 65 miles away from New York. And he enlisted his friend Stanford White to design the lab building at the bottom in an Italian Renaissance style. And over it, he plans to build this giant bulbous tower. It sort of resembles a giant glass salt shaker, Mm -hmm. you know, the old diner variety. Oh, sure. Wow, Stanford White? So he's like really rubbing elbows here with the Gilded Age greats here, isn't he? Oh, he was definitely familiar with the social register Mm -hmm. of the day. He was making his rounds, in fact, and talking up his idea to build not the power station, right? Because Mm -hmm. he wasn't calling it a power station. He was referring to it as the Worldwide Radio Broadcast Center. Okay. So that was the idea that he was shopping around to people, that he was going to build this tower out in Long Island Mm -hmm. and similar towers all over the world. And he approached uh, the great industrialists of the time to try to get money and funding for this. He went back to Westinghouse. Westinghouse just offered him a loan. Mm -hmm. He didn't really want to invest heavily in this. But J.P. Morgan was interested and offered a $150,000 investment in his company. Well, this is literally the decade of huge ideas and people with big pockets. So he now is Morgan funding him. And Stanford White designing his lab. When in 1901, Marconi sends his famous S mm-hmm. across the Atlantic wirelessly. So Marconi is a few steps ahead of him at his own public game. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. That's when, you know, if you read certain accounts, this is when Tesla decides to go full throttle into the wireless power transmission. The electricity through the air. Saying, okay, well, this wireless communication thing is not really going to be enough to make a big commercial and scientific impact. Mm -hmm. So we're going to step this up and we're going to send power through the air. Others would say that that, you know, that this power transmission was his idea the whole time in the first place. Whatever the reason, in 1901, he decides at his lab called Wardenclyffe out in Long Island that he's going to fully go after the wireless power transmission. That's going to be a majorly expensive project, though, right? Right. And he hadn't even received all of the um, $150,000 yet from Morgan. So he wrote a series of letters to Morgan asking first for the rest of his money and then also for more money. And Morgan basically just cut him off and said, you know what? 
this is actually a breach of contract. You're changing the direction of this company Mm -hmm. and I'm pulling out. And so Morgan pulled out his funding and that did irrevocable harm to Tesla and his ability to really even run his company. Because if he had unlimited funds, it's very possible that he could have achieved his goals out here on Wardenclyffe. Right. Well, it, somehow in 1902, he did finish the lab. And by the end of the year, the tower was finished. But th- the lack of funds really kept it from operating. And in July of 1903, when Morgan finally said, I'm out of this, that night on July 14th, the tower lit up with bolts of electricity and would never publicly function again. It only had a one night performance. One night only, within a few years, the facility would be completely abandoned. Tesla had to mortgage the tower in order to pay his debts at the Waldorf Astoria. And in 1915, George Bolt, who was the manager of the Waldorf, actually foreclosed on the tower. And two years later, it was dynamited and sold for scrap. This really set him on a spiral. You know, he had made so much money for other people, fabulous sums of money. But in the end, through some of these occasions and some bad business decisions and some unlucky experiences, um, he was eventually left destitute and reliant a lot on the generosity of others. Now, here late in his life, a lot of these famous quirks of his personality, these eccentricities, he would become known for these in the press, right? So as he sort of fades from view in terms of his prominence, as this inventor and electrical pioneer, a lot of the stories in the press would be slightly condescending and more sort of like, what a pitiful, smart old man living by himself. And we're talking about like the 1920s? Yes, 1920s, 1930s, the August of his years. Some of his more well-known curious traits were his obsession with the number three. He was a total germaphobe and yet had an increasing love of pigeons throughout his life. Never married. He never married. Uh, He doesn't appear to have had any kind of romantic or sexual relationship in his life, as far as we know. But I like the fact that as he gets older, he remains, he keeps these long walks through New York going. He will sometimes walk almost 10 miles a day, even as he gets older here, counting all of his steps along the way. You know, today it's quite amazing the fact that you're counting your steps like people have devices that do it for them right, but probably is- powered by some technology <laughs> that he invented yes now add these characteristics to an explosion of seemingly strange ideas later in life his last two patents for instance did you know tom uh, were for a helicopter-like device, as something that was a vertical takeoff and landing capabilities, but very early version of the helicopter. Hmm. In his 80s, he worked on devices to improve the size and quality of chicken eggs and also a some sort of electrotherapeutic device that an early version had apparently helped Mark Twain, but he worked on this late into his own life. And that was something that throughout his career, he really extolled the virtue of electrical charges Mm -hmm. um, and said that he was destined to live a very long life because of his repeated exposure to electrical waves. Well, you can kind of see now why he becomes a cult figure later, sort of like after he dies and, you know, even today. In 1933, he moved into the Hotel New Yorker at 34th Street and 8th Avenue into, no surprise, the room number 3327 on the 33rd floor. Now, as we mentioned in the prior show about electricity in New York, that he had this love of pigeons and frequently visited Bryant Park where he would feed the pigeons. 
And even in later years, when he was too old to walk over to Bryant Park, he would even send a messenger boy to feed the same group of pigeons every single day. Hmm. And we did tell a story in that show about this white pigeon that he had a particular affection for. But I kind of don't want to focus on those those stories, which make him seem like somewhat... A total oddball. A total oddball here. Because he, because he still had this great ability to think outside the box and even a touch of showman possibilities here. So uh, he was still inventing, even in his 80s? Yeah, in, even in his 80s. He would have a press conference every year on his birthday at the Hotel New Yorker. In 1934, it was announced that he had created a particle beam weapon, a death ray, as it would be called, according to the New York Times, something that would quote, bring down a fleet of 10,000 enemy aircrafts at a distance of 250 miles from defending the nation's border, unquote. Again, this sounds like something out of a science fiction film. Yeah, I mean, he's... he's A sounds death like, beam? A death beam. Well, he sounds like a character from a science fiction fantasy film, right? I mean, they're inspired by him, by, by his great and interesting ideas. It caused quite a panic, and he indeed tried to sell this to many different governments, sell this idea to the U.S. government, and then to the Soviets, to the British. And to Yugoslavia, all allies, Mm -hmm. by the way. So, and it was... He believed that spies had even broke into his room at some point looking for these particular plans. But of course, as we know, Tesla had most of that up in his head. Now, in 1937, he was hit by a car on one of his daily walks. And so that pretty much kept him sealed up in his room. And I just imagine that, like, being in his age and being cooped up, this man who's used to walking around and just being wildly inventive, that this must have just taken a toll on this marvelous brain of his. And so on January 7th, 1943, he died here in his room all alone in room 3327. His funeral was at St. John the Divine, and his body actually lay in state at Frank Campbell's funeral home. Funeral home to the stars, including Rudolph Valentino. Yeah, no, this was at their like later location at Madison and 81st, but it's the very same, uh, same place. They're, they're equipped for thousands of mourners who came in to pay their respects to Tesla. I want to read an excerpt from the New York Times from January 9th that summarizes his last years. I think it's a very beautiful sentiment. If ever an inventor satisfied the romantic requirements of a Jules Verne novel, it was Nikola Tesla. Communicating with Mars, plucking heat units out of the atmosphere to run engines, using the whole Earth as an electrical resonator so that a man in China could communicate wireless with another in South America, transmitting power through space. It was to such possibilities that he devoted the last 40 years of his long life." So we mentioned a lot of New York City addresses here where people can go and see places where Nikola Tesla worked. A few other places that we didn't mention, there's the southwest corner of Bryant Park is referred to as Nikola Tesla Corner. Where he frequently went to feed the birds. Where he went to feed the birds and he worked, you know, for many years nearby at 8 West 40th, just down the street. And before he moved into the Hotel New Yorker, he lived at the Gerlich Hotel, which is at West 27th Street between 6th Avenue and Broadway. Now it's referred to as the Radio Wave Building in his honor. In 2007, the Tesla Memorial Society unveiled a bust out in front of St. Sava Cathedral at 25th and Broadway. But I think most exciting in terms of Tesla and thinking of lasting memorials, is the location out in Long Island, Wardenclyffe. 
has been landmarked, at least what's remains of Wardenclyffe, and there there are plans to build a museum out there, which may end up being the focus of all things Tesla in the world, or at least in the United States. For more on this, including some fascinating, some electrifying, hair-raising photos <laughs> featuring bolts of lightning, head to the blog, Bowery Boys history.com, where Greg is going to be assembling some fun photos and links to other newspaper articles, including, Greg, we didn't even get to talk about his 1912 plan to electrify New York City public schools in order to increase intelligence. He thought he could send electrical waves into the classrooms. Wow, I wish that would have worked. (laughs) And on a final note, I just have to say that while we were recording this show, our publisher just sent us the final version of the Bowery Boys book, Adventures in Old New York, which will be released. Were you checking your email while we were recording this? Well, you know, there were a couple dead spots. (laughs) I'm kidding. No, 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 no. We We took a break. Come on. Adventures in Old New York, which is out on June 14th. We're very excited for you guys to see it. It is a hunk of a book, very beautiful, and we hope that you will be very entertained and informed by it. So many, many announcements about that book are will be, of course, forthcoming. But it is available for pre-order on Barnes and Noble and Amazon.com and through bookstores, through your local bookstore. And to our patrons on Patreon, we will actually be reading a couple excerpts of that book, and that will be available within a couple weeks. So thank you so much for joining us on this rather charged journey through Nikola Tesla's New York. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs>